I want to encourage you to open up to the book of Leviticus. And as you're opening up towards the back, actually chapter 25 is what you're looking for. We didn't sing it this morning, but in the familiar praise song, Days of Elijah, the chorus has a verse that declares, so lift your voice, it's the year of jubilee. Now, this has been a popular praise song in the last couple of years, and given its popularity, I'm pretty confident that you've either heard this song or sung these words at least once somewhere. The question this morning is how many of us know or understand exactly what we have been singing? So lift your voice, it's the year of Jubilee. The English name Jubilee comes from the Latin word jubileus, which is a translation of the original Hebrew word yobel, which literally means ram. Confused? Don't be. The origin of this word, as you're about to find out, stems from the start of this very special observance in the life of the Israelites, recorded in Leviticus chapters 25 and also in chapter 27. And as Mark Wardle comes forward to read to us from chapter 25, and as we come to the end of our study of the book of Leviticus, this fascinating book, we're going to listen and learn about the institution of the year of Jubilee. You can find the uh, passages on page 87 of your pew Bible. It's Leviticus, sorry, 25, 8 through 12, and 35 through 43. Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the Day of Atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land and to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. To do not sow, do not reap what grows it, uh, of itself or harvest the untended vines. For it is a jubilee and is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. Chapter 35, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger so that they continue to live among you. Do not take interest or profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of the Jubilee. Then they and their children are to be released, and they will go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors. Because the Israelites are my servants, whom I brought out of Egypt, they must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. This is the word of the Lord. What you just read in uh, chapter 25, what we encounter here, is sometimes called the sabbatical cycle. It's uh, found in Leviticus, but it's also repeated in Exodus and Deuteronomy, which means that it's important. It's very important because God repeats himself. What's outlined here is uh, three cycles, three rhythms of seven, and we've already looked at two of them in a previous sermon. The first rhythm of seven was the Sabbath day. Every seventh day was to be a Sabbath, a stop or a cessation of work. And just as a reminder, in case you missed that sermon, the lesson of the Sabbath was and is 
a countercultural rhythm of resting in order to work. Resting in order to work rather than the way that we do it, which is working in order to rest. The Sabbath was such a, a, an integral rhythm of life that in the, in the giving of it, it was extended even to animals and foreigners. The second rhythm of seven was the sabbatical year. And also in a previous sermon, we looked at this. This was every seventh year the nation as a whole was to observe a year of rest. During this seventh year, the people were to live off the land, but were not to work their land. Farms and fields were to lie fallow. There was to be no sowing and no harvesting. And this allowed even the land, creation itself, to rest. But what we're focusing on this morning is this third rhythm of sevens that really took things to the next level. Every 49 years, or as you heard Mark read it from Scripture, the year after the seventh sabbatical year, so if you do the math in your head, seven times seven, which is 49, as the calendar turned to year 50, a blow on the shofar, you hear have the English word trumpet, but it was the shofar, which is basically a ram's horn, a ram's horn that's made into an instrument for, for making a sound, announced the start of the year of jubilee. And the details, as you heard Mark read it, of this half-century, year-long observance were fourfold. No work was to be done in the fields. Again, no planting, no harvesting. Slaves, not as we've known them in our history as a nation, think more of indentured servants. Slaves were set free. All debts were canceled. And all land was to be returned to the families to whom it was originally given. Those were the radical provisions of the year of Jubilee, the 50th year. What was the purpose of this? What was the purpose of the sabbatical cycle as a whole, but specifically the year of Jubilee? And there's a couple of things that Scripture, here in Leviticus, but elsewhere, will come back to again and again. This sabbatical cycle, the year of Jubilee, was about an identity marker for the people of Israel. By living differently as a community dependent upon their father's provision. As a children living in reliance upon their father, Israel demonstrated to the world what it means to be a covenant people. In the periodic seasons of rest that God gave, the Israelites were being reminded of who they are and that who they are and what they have is not by the creation of their own hands. And it's a timely reminder for us also as a people, as children of this God. The message was, we are stewards of everything, but we are owners of nothing. And that's a word that we need to hear still in our day. We are stewards of everything, but owners of nothing. We are not, despite what our financial planners tell us, investors. We are an investment. God has invested in us. The sabbatical cycle was an identity marker to show what it means to live as a covenant people in relationship with this God. But the sabbatical cycle, the Sabbath day, the Sabbath year, and the year of Jubilee was also the retelling of God's story. It was drawing Israel into the past, pointing backwards to the very beginning, to God's creation, when things work as he intended. It pointed back to the Exodus when Yahweh revealed himself as the Redeemer and began to reestablish his reign over a broken and rebellious world. And, and the year of Jubilee and, the, and the, the sabbatical cycle as a whole didn't just point backwards, but it also pointed forwards. These three cycles, in pointing back to what our father intended, also pointed his children towards their future and pointed towards that future with hope. In remembering what the Lord had made, in remembering how much the people had lost, and yet remembering how God had redeemed them, the people of God could look ahead to what the Lord would remake, to what he was remaking, 
And so in this tension, which we still live in today, where the world, where things are not as our father intended for his children, and then and now we describe the world we live in in ways that reflect this. We describe the world as not the way that God intended. We talk about our own world sometimes as being a rat race. We talk about it being a dog-eat-dog world. We'd see the chaos more than anything else. And in the midst of that tension, then and now, where the world is not as our Father intended for creation, these cycles of seven reminded them and remind us, his children, that our Father isn't finished yet. That our Father isn't finished yet. (laughs) Beloved, Jubilee was a reminder in a very practical way that our God is the God of second chances. It signaled a new beginning, a time when all who had failed at life or work were given what we call, in our vernacular, a do-over. Jubilee saw that to it that everyone got a fresh start once, at least once in their lifetime. But it's important we get this. The sabbatical cycle as a whole in the year of Jubilee wasn't just about trusting that the Lord would provide for you. It was a call also to live as just righteous, a holy community within that unfolding reality of the Lord's provision. These cycles, especially the year of Jubilee, were not about sound economic policy that was rooted in common sense. Many times we try to make that, this is about sound economic policy, but it's not so much about common sense as it is about an expression of faith. It was an exercise of trust that God would be God that God was more than capable for providing for the people even as they shut down their farming economy, even as they released their workforce, their servants, even as they returned the deeds to the properties that they had accumulated, and even as they remitted their debts. In other words, it's like this. The idea, the underlying principle was if God is capable of taking care of me, I am free to become God's means of taking care of others. You can remit your debts. You can cancel the debts that are owed to you. You can take that hit because God is your security. You can release your workforce, the servants that you need to get the harvest in next year because ultimately you don't provide for yourself. God does. But as you heard, in case a generation overlooked or worse, ignored God's call to rely upon him, in case a generation ignored God's repeated call to care for the needy, to be merciful to the oppressed, or as you also heard, not to profit from the misfortune of others, the year of Jubilee forced the issue. In a world then and now that still is divided by class, where the rich just tend to get richer and the poor just sink deeper into poverty, every 50 years, Jubilee leveled the playing field. It curtailed the human desire that we have to accumulate more, and it checked our temptation towards greed by making, by yanking down social and corporate ladders. All who had benefited from others' failures had to let go of their gains. The rich were kept humble, and the poor were made hopeful. Coming every 50 years, the Jubilee reminded each generation that people were not allowed to take advantage of each other in life or business because to do so was to take advantage of God. And for us, Jubilee as an act of worship reminds us in our day that we should work to provide for the disadvantaged. We should work to provide for those living in poverty in our day. We should find ways to give, to give opportunities for those who are struggling to succeed. It's important. Jubilee brings home something that I don't think we talk about a lot in the church, which is this. Biblically, it's not enough to avoid being ruthless towards others. 
It's not enough to just not take advantage of the weak. Biblically, as people of the Jubilee, we are called to look for ways to give those less fortunate than ourselves fresh opportunities to succeed. We are, as another scripture tells us, our brother's keeper. Let me give you a macro example of what it would look like to live as a Jubilee people in light of this. A macro, a big picture example, and, and some of you may be familiar with this. It's, a, it's a, a bill that became legislation in our country called the Jubilee Act. Passed in 2008 and supported by many churches, House Resolution 2634, the Jubilee Act addressed the sobering reality that the majority of the world's population, let me say that again in case you, I went too fast, the majority of the world's population does not have access to clean water, adequate housing, or basic health care the majority of the world's population. This is particularly true in the world's most impoverished nations because these countries are paying debt service to wealthy nations and institutions at the expense of providing these basic services to their citizens. Now the irony is, is that these nations, in just in terms of dollars, have already paid back their debts time and again before the passage of the Jubilee Act. But here's the thing. What led to this movement was the realization that all the monies given towards repayment were only servicing interest. From the time of the original loans, as interest rates rose, compound interest made repayment of the original debts impossible. And so what was happening in the majority of the countries of this world, debt service payments we're taking resources that impoverished countries could use to cure things like preventable diseases. And, and you heard in Jubilee, we could gloss over it, the specific command of God not to take interest. And, and it, it's this kind of practical real-life example that shows us why the Hebrew word for interest literally means to bite. To bite. And this Jubilee Act passed in 2008 has provided debt reduction and in some cases the cancellation of debt for many of these countries. This is huge. And again, this is, this is changing a way of life on basic things that we take for granted. Clean water, you know, adequate housing, these are things that we don't even think about. We just assume that everybody has. I mean, we actually get annoyed if we can't find a clean you know, a cold cup of water if we can't get water when we need it. We tend to get pretty frustrated by that, and we don't live in the reality that the majority of people in our world, the best that they can do is water that they know is going to make them sick that's probably going to lead them to die, but it's the only water they have. But yet, here's an example of something of the spirit of Jubilee coming into how we live as a people, the Jubilee Act. And what it's reflective of is, again, this picture that we're given. The blow of the ram's horn every 50 years served for the people as an epic Really, reset button. Everything returned to their default settings. Everyone got a fresh start. And I, I, think, I, I think some of us could appreciate what this must have been like. Can you imagine what it would be like to recover property that you've lost due to poor investments? Can you imagine what it would be like to win back your freedom after becoming a slave to debt? Can you imagine what it would be like to suddenly perceive a future when for years, as things just piled up, as it got worse and worse, you believed there was no hope to suddenly perceive that not only was there a future, but that future was hopeful. If you're at rock bottom, or if you're even halfway there, things are looking up with the Jubilee. However, if your view is from the top, or even somewhere near the middle, which probably speaks to a lot of us in this room, an event like the Jubilee 
would seem to require tremendous faith. I'm sorry. What did God say? All I've worked for, all I've worked hard for and saved up for gets set back to zero? Excuse me? What, what, wait, wait. Um, my future was my retirement, specifically my home, and now it goes back to the original owner? After all these years, 49 of these years, I have to start over again? Beloved, if all this time, all these 49 years, you've prided yourself on being self-sufficient, if for 49 years you've worked hard to be self-reliant, let's be honest, the big 5-0, the Jubilee isn't a cause for celebration. It's a crisis of faith. It's a crisis of faith asking in what or whom do you really believe? You see, another way of understanding the command to observe the year of Jubilee is to hear the encouragement in it to live out of the Lord's favor. To live in the confidence that the Lord is and will continue to work favorably in one's life. We can come together as we do every week and, and say that we trust God. We can interact with each other on a day-to-day -day basis and when things don't go our way, declare to each other, say to each other, you know what? We believe the Lord will provide. We can tell ourselves that our Father supplies all our needs, but when He actually tells us to live off the land, not to sow, not to reap, when He tells us to cancel our debts and release the hired help, to give back the house and close out the retirement account, that's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? You see, the sabbatical cycle was a scriptural indicator of how and what we worship with our lives. I mean, and one of the things, if you did a survey of the Bible, that's fascinating that you'll see, Old Testament, New Testament, the Bible says over and over again, the two biggest indicators, the two biggest indicators of how we worship and what we worship are how we spend our time and how we spend our money. And right here in the sabbatical cycle and with the year of Jubilee, both come right to our line of sight. How those are spent, how we spend our time and our money, where both of those are invested, our time and our money, scripturally, is a dead ringer of what matters most to us, of what or for whom we are living. I've tried to, to set this up for you, but imagine, really, and I let your imagine run wild right now, imagine if this, we were a couple of months away from year 50, Imagine we were about to celebrate the year of Jubilee. Imagine this was year 49. Imagine what that might look like. How would this translate into our own context? What would it look like to experience the four things that I just talked about that God said in the year of Jubilee? The forgiveness of all debts. The letting go of the workforce. The not working, but just simply being in God's presence. Not working the land, but living off of what God provides. And property returning it to its original owners. Imagine what that would be like. Let your imagine run wild. And as you're imagining, let me ask you, are you excited or are you doubtful? This is never going to work. This is a train wreck right here. We do this, this is a train wreck. This will rip apart not only the economy of this nation, but the economy of the world as we know it. Let me ask you, as you, you think about what it would be like, are you eager for the calendar to turn to year 50 or are you resistant this is just asking way too much of a change in my lifestyle and how I work. I thought tithing was a stretch. 
I thought when they passed the offering plate, I got uncomfortable. But now, God's just asking way too much if I have to completely let everything get set back to zero. See, beloved, these three cycles of seven force us to stop, and we don't like to stop. We don't, we don't stop. These three cycles of seven force us to stop, and they make us, in stopping, focus on what's supposed to be the most important thing, what we say is the most important thing, why we're here this morning. These three cycles make us stop and focus on the one and only thing upon which everything else in our life is built, the grace, love, and mercy of our Father. And yet, in these cycles, if we have a hard time stopping, if when we stop doing and are just being, if we find it hard to focus on that relationship, if we find ourselves in stopping continually distracted by other things, if we find ourselves getting angry that we have to stop or depressed because we can't produce, beloved, the symptoms speak for themselves. The symptoms speak for themselves. When God calls us to stop and we can't or won't, the symptoms speak for themselves. What we're having is what we accurately call in other places withdrawals. We're having withdrawals from where the real investment of our lives is. We're having withdrawals from the actual addictions that we're living with. And this is why God makes us stop. I've said it before and I'll say it again. There is only one addiction that will not kill you. Only one. Everything else, anything else you're addicted to will kill you. Guaranteed. The only addiction that brings life is being addicted to being in relationship with our Heavenly Father. To being addicted to following Jesus Christ. That is the only addiction that will keep and save your life. Any other addiction, you can name it. It will kill you. It will take away life, not give life. I know I'm, I'm, I'm really throwing down this morning scripturally, aren't I? I mean, you, some of the looks on your faces are a mixture of deer in headlights and also like laser beams. I'm with you. I'm not apart from this. I'm sitting in this with you. And I want to say to you that if you, in hearing all of this, as the year of Jubilees laid out, as scripture lays this out, and, and if you're intimidated by the reorientation that the year of Jubilee requires of us, if you sit here this morning and all of this feels more like a giant leap than a small step of faith, don't worry. You're not alone in feeling this way. Because here's the thing. The observance of the year of Jubilee does not appear to have made it past the outlining phase in the Bible. <laughs> Outside of Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy, the only biblical reference to Jubilee is Numbers 36, verse 4. In case you're missing this, there are no biblical stories set during the Jubilee. Though commanded by the Lord, there is no record anywhere in Scripture of it being enforced. Apparently, it never happened. It never materialized. We don't know why. We don't know why. Maybe it was deemed too impractical. Uh, maybe it just took too much faith to do it. Maybe those who made it to the top were too unwilling to let loose of their achievements. We don't know why it didn't happen. All we do know is that every 50 years, our father planned the party of the half century, and no one ever decided to show up. And that decision on Israel's part was not without its consequences. In fact, in Leviticus chapters 26 and 27, God spells out exactly what will happen to Israel if Israel chooses to ignore these sabbatical cycles. And if you know the story, 
If you know the story of God's word, you know that Israel's repeated choice to live outside the Lord's favor, to not exist as a people of the Jubilee, led to her downfall. Redeemed from their slavery in Egypt, delivered into a rich, promised land, God's people took advantage of the Lord's favor, advantage of God's goodness, so much so that they lost their land and their freedom. And if you've read the story, you know that the Babylonians ransacked Israel and drove its population into captivity. But despite this, and this is, I find this observation fascinating and compelling, despite this, in the midst of the consequences, real consequences, not to shy away from them, real consequences that we see in Scripture, that we experience in our life, in the midst of these real consequences, what we also see in the story is God's grace. God's grace visible as through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord gave the people another shot at Jubilee. We said it this morning as our call to worship. Isaiah 61, hear the words again. Looking towards the future and the promise of salvation, Isaiah said on behalf of the Lord, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Make no mistake, this is jubilee language. But again, if you've read the story, you know that this jubilee likewise went unfulfilled. Even though the people were rescued, human nature being what it is, the people quickly reverted back to their own independent ways and found themselves in captivity again, this time with the Romans and seemingly with no hope on the horizon. But the good news, the gospel, is that while the people may never have observed the year of Jubilee in all of Scripture, that doesn't mean, beloved, that the Jubilee wasn't fulfilled. You see, Jesus, at the inauguration of his ministry, when he first started out, he came to church, he came to synagogue, and he got up to preach, and he dusted off the book of Isaiah and read these same Jubilee promises again. But more than this, if you know this story in Luke chapter 4, Jesus read those promises from Isaiah that the people had forgotten about. And in reading them, he pronounced them as fulfilled even as he read them. Jesus takes up the passage we just heard, these, this law that's outlined in Leviticus 25, and he says, what you've been looking for, what you've been longing for God to do, what Jubilee has been pointing toward, it's happening in me. And then from that point forward, this is a whole different way of reading the Gospels, by the way, from the perspective of Jubilee. From that point forward, we are told that Jesus goes out and brings about his Father's restoration and liberation. In some ways that were obvious to the people, the blind receiving sight, but mostly in ways that revealed that the Jubilee at its heart, the spirit of the law of Jubilee, was about more than just balancing the scale, scales economically. That the broader ethic that the community missed, the broader ethic that we miss in understanding the Jubilee, is about the freedom of forgiveness. You know, one thing you may not have noticed when Mark was reading from Leviticus chapter 25, it's so easy to just glide right by it, is that the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25 is celebrated in the aftermath of the Day of Atonement. After seven sabbatical seasons had passed, on the Day of Atonement of the 49th year, a trumpet blast signaled a special celebration. In other words, in the 49th year, not only was the goat removed, remember the goat, but all Debts were removed as well. 
The freedom of slaves, the cancellation of all debts, reflected the larger gift of our Father's forgiveness of sins. This is one of the reasons why one of the versions of the Lord's Prayer has that we ask for forgiveness of our debts. We Lutherans say trespasses, but you know that there are other translations that say forgive us our debts. The word here is a financial term because that's what we owe to God. Sin is pictured as a debt, but on Jubilee, all debts are forgiven. God forgives us our own debts because he understands our economic condition. He knows that we can't possibly repay all the wrongs we have ever done to one another, nor can we repay all the wrongs we have ever done to him. We simply don't have that kind of spiritual wealth. And so as we learned previously, as we've looked at Leviticus, Jesus becomes the scapegoat for our sins. He is led outside the city walls and has our sin placed on him so we can go free. Through Jesus dying in our place, taking on our sin, he becomes our jubilee. Jesus is the jubilee as we find in him our greatest liberty, our greatest freedom. And contrary to what we often say and sing, Jesus' debt Death was not a payment for the debt of our sin. Let me say that again. Contrary to what we often say in saying, the well-intentioned, Jesus' death was not a payment for the debt of our sin. Because nothing can act as a payment for that debt. Nothing can act as a payment for an entire existence of wronging one another and of wronging God. It's too much. Jesus' death instead represents a, not a payment of that debt, but a forgiveness of that debt. And beloved, let that sink in. What is more significant, payment or forgiveness? Jesus' death is not a payment. It's a forgiveness of that debt. Jesus establishes justice as he yanks down the ladders in division between us, as he squares our accounts with God, as he settles our debts. The poor are exalted and the weak are lifted up. The last are first and the lost are found. Sinners get a do-over. It's a fresh start. And as Jesus rises from the dead, the blow of the trumpet, the trumpet blast of the resurrection proclaims to one and all that we are now living the year of Jubilee. Beloved, what does it mean to live as a Jubilee people? We've flirted with it a little bit this morning. What does it mean to live as a Jubilee people? It's, it's both an invitation and a challenge. First and foremost, it's an invitation to participate in something more than a specific year on a calendar. It is, as Jesus said, the invitation to be a part of the dawning of a new age of humanity. The invitation of Jubilee is the invitation of the kingdom that in the midst of our rebellious and sinful world, God's reign is present and available. And in his reign, we are cared for. And so, beloved, the invitation is that if you're sitting here today and you've been coming to church for all your life, or maybe you haven't come in a long time, and yet you are sitting here, and what you are feeling as you're sitting here is still the weight of your own sin. If you're sitting here, and yet despite what draws you here, you're still uncomfortable, you're still burdened by the dissatisfaction of your own failures before God and others, receive Jesus as your jubilee. Because by the cross and the resurrection, he has freed you from the indebtedness that you owe God. From your enslavement to the chains of guilt and shame. From the tyrant that we call self. That's the invitation to live as a jubilee people. But the invitation comes with a challenge. And the challenge of being a jubilee people, the challenge of being a kingdom people, is that we are to live favorably. We have to live out of our Father's favor. 
We have to live out of the freedom of our forgiveness in Christ. And this means that we must courageously participate in our Father's kingdom. We must participate in the work of Jubilee. What does that look like? Well, it has happened more than 70 times now in just over a year. A man had his brother pass away at only 30 years of age. He was later surprised to learn about the specific wish that his brother Aaron had asked him to fulfill as recorded in his last will and testament. And it was this. Go out to eat and leave a hugely extravagant tip. As Aaron put it in his will himself, and this is so ironic in light of last week's sermon, and I don't mean 25%, I mean $500 on a freaking pizza. He didn't say freaking. <laughs> well, this man who had just lost his brother did exactly that. He scrounged up $500, went out to eat with his family, and surprised their waitress with the $500 tip. And then he posted the video on YouTube. Now, you know about YouTube, you know that if videos are particularly compelling, they have a tendency to be watched by many. And this video, his video, soon went viral. And suddenly, people were stepping forward asking if they could donate to make four, more $500 tips happen. Enough people, in fact, that the $500 tip has been given 71 times in over a year. Just last week was 71, as a matter of fact. For those of you keeping score at home, that's almost $36,000. All from a man who had just lost his brother. Each of these tips is on video and is posted on YouTube. And if you watch them, you can't help but notice a repeated pattern that is just wonderful. Most of the waiters and waitresses are overwhelmed by the surprise and the joy of receiving such an outrageous tip. But then several of them proceed to talk about how they could use the money for paying off debts. Beloved, this is a wonderful little example of living as a Jubilee people. Because when you truly understand that your greatest debt has been paid, not paid, forgiven, right? When you truly understand that your greatest debt has been forgiven, that all that you have and all that you are isn't yours but is on loan from God, when you understand those two things, then generosity can't help but flow forth from you. And beloved, it's more than leaving 500, a $500 tip for a pizza. But that's a pretty good place to start. In fact, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you. Sometime this month to leave a $500 tip. Go ahead, let it out right now. <laughs> Go ahead. Because the reality is some of you are like, wow, to compare the day of Jubilee, the year of Jubilee to a $500 tip for a pizza, that seems pretty sad. Well, really? Then go ahead and go do it yourself. Leave a $500 tip. Scrounge together the money and leave it for someone. And that shows you just how far we are from how God calls us to live. I'll challenge you in a different way rather than a $500 tip. Whatever it is, within your own circumstances, do something extravagant. Give something extravagant away. Doesn't that be money? Give something extravagant away. Surprise someone with extravagant generosity. Do it as an act of jubilee. Between you and God, we'll never speak of this again. Only you know if you just let this go in one ear and out the other or whether you actually put this to heart. But let me say to you, my challenge to you to live and do an act of extravagance for the sake of Jubilee is, is, is an opportunity for you in a tangible, practical way, a small way to experience 
what we so rarely experience in our lives by our own choice, and that is this, living in dependence upon our Father. In the smallest of ways, experience what it's like to live in dependence upon your Father. And more than that, why I'm challenging you to do this, as you'll see in the video, it will also give you the experience in living in dependence upon your Father to see something that we also often miss, which is how when we live in dependence upon our Father, we are blessed, we have the opportunity to be the, a vessel by which God sets another person free. Watch the waiters and waitresses on that video. And, and what's hilarious is right now we're all gulping at 500 bucks, man, to leave a tip of $500. I myself included. I'm not, you know, I'm going $500. That's some cash. But do you understand when you watch those videos that to us where that seems like a huge, huge amount of money, that to the people who received that tip when you watch that video, it was nothing. If their debts are anything like our debts or what most people say is the debt level in this country, $500 is a drop in the bucket. But based upon their reaction, you wouldn't know it. Because it all matters from the perspective that you're at. And to drive this home, let's just not stop with $500 tips. By all means, let's really go and live as a Jubilee people. Because living favorably, living as a Jubilee people is about more than being radical with our generosity financially. Being a Jubilee people, living as followers of Christ, means not just being generous financially, it also means being just as generous with our forgiveness. Beloved, be holy as I am holy can also be translated be forgiving as I am forgiving. You see, Jubilee is about the flattening of our perceptions, of realizing despite what we often think, despite how we often live, despite what the commentators in our society tell us, Jubilee is about reminding us that the playing field is level. If we tend to think of ourselves as better than others, if we tend to think of ourselves as less sinful before God, if we tend to think of ourselves as not as bad as those people, Jesus as our jubilee reveals that we are looking at things the wrong way. That the only way we should be looking at ourselves and looking at each other is in relation to our Father. And in God's eyes, we are all poor and needy children. So beloved, the other challenge that I would give to you in being a Jubilee people for us is asking you, who do you need to forgive? What debts is our Father calling you to cancel today? If experience is any guide, we come in here and we celebrate on a regular basis the fact that we have forgiveness in Christ that our debts have been forgiven in Christ, that we can have a clear conscience. And yet, if experience is any guide, for the majority of us who are sitting here who experience that and claim that on the, on the one hand, if experience is any guide, most of us are hanging on to some debts that haven't been paid back to us on the other. Most of us are not as forgiving as our Father is forgiving. Most of us, much like Israel, are not living the year of Jubilee, even though our Father has commanded us to do so. Right about now, leaving $500 for a pizza tip sounds pretty good to you, doesn't it? I'd scrounge up the money and I'd pay $500 rather than having to let go of something I've been holding on to a long time. A debt that has not been satisfied for me. $500 seems a small price to pay rather than to have to, to cancel, to forgive what I believe, what I know is unforgivable. 
And yet, beloved, this is it. This is what it's all about. This is what it means to be followers of Christ. This is what it means to be a kingdom people. This is what it means to be a people of Jubilee. This is it. Strip it all away. And that's why the Lord, when he taught us to pray, didn't just say, forgive us our trespasses, but forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. If we're sitting here today and we are not willing to hear our Father when he says, let it go. Give it to me. Cancel that debt. And the truth is, we're no different than those who blew off the party. Our Father has announced a party. Our Father has invited us to a party. And inside is that person. You know who they are. That person who our Father is saying, they were dead and now they're alive. They're one of my children and they're here. Are we going to come in or are we going to argue about the goat we never got? Are we going to enjoy the fatted calf? Or are we going to stand on the outside and say, you know what? You can take your... Beloved, it's the year of Jubilee. It's the kingdom of God. And it's more than $500 tip for a pizza that God's asking for. What God's asking for is something much more priceless. Who do we need to forgive? What debts is our Father calling us to cancel today? And if there's any hesitation, we need to continue to look at the centerpiece of our worship and remember that there was no hesitation on the part of our Father in canceling every debt we have. That the forgiveness that we celebrate isn't limited, it's unlimited. And therefore, if we're truly receiving what our Father is offering, we can't change the terms of the gift. And so we come to the end of the book of Leviticus. We've learned a lot through this strange, odd, wild book. We've learned, I hope, that worship isn't something we do with part of our lives. Worship is more than an hour or a day. Worship is offering all of our lives in the service of a God who provides everything we need. Worship is coming clean with our Father in the midst of our brokenness and our sin. Just confessing it, letting it out, repenting and walking away when we do so spotless and pure. But a life lived in worship is also a life lived as a part of the priesthood. The priesthood of all believers. We no longer wear the old clothes of our former life. We wear the garments of salvation. And we are to be ministers of reconciliation without fear and without hesitation in a broken, bloodied, and messy world. Following his instructions, watching our mouths, we are to be holy as our Father is holy, doing unto others, loving our neighbor, being as forgiving as our Father is forgiving. Beloved, we have spent the summer, and now as it turns to fall, looking at what it means to truly live our lives in worship to God. And that means we are to live in and for Jesus as a jubilee people with our eye on the horizon of eternity. Because indeed, behold, he comes, riding on the clouds, shining like the sun. So lift your voice, lift your very life. It's the year of jubilee and out of Zion's hills. Salvation comes. Amen.